Hi, everybody. This is Leonard DiLorenzo, host of Church Life Today. Before we get to today's episode, just a quick word from me to you. We just passed our second anniversary of this show, and I wanted to say thanks. Thanks for listening, and thanks for all the great feedback you've sent our way in the past two years. If you like what you hear in our conversations with pastoral leaders and scholars, please pass our episodes along to others. Everything's available online at RedeemerRadio.com slash churchlife or on SoundCloud at Church Life Today. And if you live in an area where your local Catholic radio station does not carry our show, call your station, send them an email, ask them to take us on. Now let's get to today's show. Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Americans do not talk much about abortion, but we can under the right conditions. This is one of the conclusions that Dr. Tricia Bruce and her team of researchers posit in the report on their groundbreaking and comprehensive interview study focusing on abortion attitudes in the United States. Dr. Bruce is joining me for the second of a two-part interview on her report, How Americans Understand Abortion. Dr. Bruce's study was conducted in partnership with the McGrath Institute for Church Life, and you can download a copy of the report for free at mcgrath.nd.edu slash resources. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo, this is Church Life Today, and you can find part one of my interview with Dr. Bruce on our Church Life Today podcast. Dr. Trisha Bruce, thanks for joining us once again on Church Life Today. Thank you, good to be here. So as we concluded our last uh, episode, you were talking about the wells of meaning from which Americans draw their opinions or form their opinions, their views about abortion. Within there, I wanted to talk about one particular point or maybe a, a small constellation of points or wells, and that would be the relationship between attitudes towards abortion and attitudes towards parenting. Did you see a relationship between those? You were talking, there was some discussion of this in the report itself, and I'd love to hear more from you about any relationship you saw between attitudes towards abortion and attitudes towards parenting. There's some really interesting things that are happening. Uh, they link also to broader changes in the family across the United States. So we have trends, for example, of people waiting longer than ever to get married, declines in marriage rates overall, the rise of single parenthood and children born outside the context of a, of a traditional married family unit. And so this is sort of the backdrop in which we hear interviewees engage these kinds of questions and link them back to attitudes about abortion. One of the themes that comes up in these conversations is it tends to come across with a word like ready or readiness. There is a, I think, a, a sense that parenthood is something that is it doesn't happen to you, you choose it. It's a, a part of a controlled decision. <laughs> and so this is where you have uh, conversations about, well, for one, when is it not chosen? So if you have the, the context of non-consensual sex 
or incest, you know, rape, things like this sometimes come up to the conversation. But then you have a, a much broader conversation about what does it mean to be ready to, to be a parent? And so we heard interviewees talk through, for example, the question of age, you know, what happens when maybe they themselves as a high school, high schooler or someone they knew engaged in sexual activity at the time and then got pregnant unexpectedly. Or maybe they had, certainly had a number of people say things like, well, they felt pressured by a boyfriend at the time because they didn't want to get married or didn't want to have a child. At the, so this, and the readiness conversation is also linked to questions of financial wherewithal, the ability to afford a child, to, to the ability to pursue education, uh, higher education as a young person. So part of the, the question about abortion then gets linked to this broader trajectory of long-term outcomes for the conceiving uh, partners or the, or the parents. And one other piece I'll bring in here too, with regard to parenthood, is there's some really interesting distinctions between the ways that interviewees talk about motherhood mm-hmm. and the ways they talk about fatherhood. So here, and there's, there's more in the reports, and there's even more in this, the interviews themselves, and we'll continue to, to publish with this data. But the talk of motherhood is often implicit, by which I mean, it seems as though, you know, upon conception or upon the point of pregnancy, there is this presumption that that person is the motherhood, is the mother. So motherhood kind of starts then. Fatherhood, on the other hand, is talked of in a more contingent way. And by that, I mean, interviewees would often say things like, well, what was the nature of the relationship between the two people? You know, was it mm-hmm. a long term? Was it a one night stand? Was it a, were they in a committed relationship? Were they married? And the nature of the relationship to the, the mom in this case really shaped the ways people attribute fatherhood and whether or not that person is, is a, seen as, as a father. And this, of course, has implications for, um, we asked people also, well, if there were a case where or a situation where the woman in the instance wanted to have the child and the man in, in, in the instance did not, should he be required to pay child support? And, and the, the opinions were really across the board on that one and lots of kind of struggling to think through, well, did he want the kid or not? What does that mean? Is he a dad? Is he not? Should he have to pay for it? Right. Um, and so that is to say that there's, there are both themes related to parenthood, but it plays out differently for men. And- Interesting. And that's, if I'm understanding you correctly, that's not, you're not saying this is how men think about parenting and how women think about no. parenting. You're saying this is how everybody sees the relationship of motherhood and fatherhood to this question about welcoming, a, you know, taking in a life or the possibility of abortion. Is that right? Yeah, with important differences across different groups, too. Yes. I mean, class matters here, too. Like, we would, we would occasionally hear some people, especially those uh, with lower financial means, use language even like trap, you know, using mm. um, this possibility, you know, what does it mean to have a baby to trap the man or this? <laughs> so, like, almost a financial leverage. So, again, like, all of this in my mind, kind of thinking about the the interviews as a whole goes back to this point about it's not just about abortion and the abortion decision. It's about this broader context of conditions that created a circumstance in which this decision was made and what that meant and who was involved and what kinds of support or not there was. As you think about what you found in your interviews relative to maybe previous studies or prevalent sociological opinion about the relationship between marriage and parenting, do you think you're finding maybe what you already suspected otherwise, that there is a separation in 
the understanding of marriage and parenting that these aren't necessarily coupled or linked? One of the things that we did in these interviews was replicate a set of survey questions, which are they're problematic. I'll just label them as okay. to say that they, they've got problems. But we've used these in surveys since 1972 to try to figure out, well, how, you know, what do people think about abortion in this case, in that case, in this case? Um, and and so we wanted to see, you know, if we're using all these things, or is this how people actually think about it? And I raised this because one of the questions asks about, would you support a woman's legal access to abortion if she was married and didn't want to have any more children? And then there's another question about if she was not married and did not want to marry the man. Mm. And so both of these questions kind of raise this question that you're raising, which is, you know, the extent to which having a child is linked to being married. And what I will say on a more pattern assessment across interviews is that we did not hear, by and large, the message of, oh my gosh, I'm pregnant. Now we're going to go to the chapel and get married. This Mm. sort of conception of like, well, this means that and do it quickly, you know, before it shows under your wedding dress sort of deal. Instead, it was much more about, like, we literally had a number of people say, what does marriage have to do with it? Or what is the, you know, what does the relationship have to do with it? You know, the woman is deciding whether or not she wants to continue in this pregnancy or different discussions about, you know, the extent to which it's a shared decision. Mm-hmm. But it really was not linked neatly to marriage in ways that previous conversations and previous time periods, I think, would predict. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. I'm continuing a conversation with Dr. Trisha Bruce. This is the second of a two-part interview. We're talking about Dr. Bruce's recently published report on how Americans understand abortion. You can find that report and download it for free on the McGrath Institute for Church Life website at mcgrath.nd.edu slash resources. You know, that, that small discussion there about um, the relationship between um, marriage and parenting or the, the, as you're saying, the sort of separation of those two considerations and understandings makes me think of, you know, these as moral and personal views. And I think maybe, maybe this is too broad to say, but maybe it's also true that underneath all of the moral and personal views that each of us formulates and the choices we make are, are oftentimes these silent and unannounced embedded values uh, or even entire worldviews that we're not always really even cognizant of. And so I wonder, I'm asking you to speak pretty broadly here, probably more broadly than you might even be comfortable speaking um, <laughs> from the basis of your study. But I do wonder if you've found yourself getting a little snapshot of primary and operative American values. Like, what are these kind of values, if you could extrapolate from what you saw that are guiding the kind of views and decisions that people seem to to want to make or hold. Yeah, this is this is a great uh, question, and I, I would say also one that people themselves were grappling with in real time. And I think for some, the the invitation to articulate and dig a little deeper to try to discern kind of what's what's beneath some of what people are, are saying aloud you know, to themselves and, and to us, the interviewers, was in some cases even an occasion for angst or discomfort because people right. sometimes during the interviews would note contradictions or tensions um, between what they're saying and in some cases try to 
resolve them or figure out, okay, if I'm, if I'm saying I value this, then I need to switch what I'm saying over here because these things don't mesh. But in other cases, I think people just, you know, sort of shrugged and, and recognized, hey, things are, are not, they don't neatly fit together. You use the word worldview. Mm-hmm. And some of the past literature and books, uh, there's one by Kristen Luker, uh, written some years ago about attitudes towards abortion. And her focus especially is on activists. And I think it meshes a little better because in what we heard, I am really cautious about about terms like worldview, mm-hmm. just because I think it gets us a little bit closer in incorrect ways to these mutually exclusive camps whereby, mm-hmm. you know, you see the world this way or you see the world this way. And I think what we saw was messier. I think that there are not only blurred lines, but, you know, almost like even to the extent that there are mutually exclusive worldviews, we saw people sort of hopping in and out and like trying to, you know, <laughs> to pull something from one and something from another. So, you know, I, I do think there are some sort of underlying principles that start to, to percolate when you see the, the threads that come through vis-a-vis um, conceptions of, of life, of sexuality, of um, personal agency and whatnot, but they don't coalesce in neat ways into anything that, that I would put a label on of, of a worldview. Oh, I really appreciate that, that correction and clarification. I think that's really important. I was, you know, as I was reading the report, I was, in terms of kind of values that seem to be operative, I was wondering about kind of a, an operative value of like, seek to do no harm, and especially in terms of like, <laughs> do not offend. So a, a kind of undercurrent of tolerance, even from those who hold very who might hold very strong views, there was there seemed to be hesitancy around the edges about saying to or for someone else, this is categorically wrong, or to seem like you're in a position of judgment. Am I am I reading yes. that into it? Or am yes. I reading that correctly? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. What's super interesting to me about this, and this is probably back also even to the to the worldview comment uh-huh. is that this kind of cuts across um, attitudes, meaning that beneath you know, kind of wherever people fell attitude wise, we heard a lot of language around, well, <laughs> even language that judged, but then said, but I don't judge. <laughs> you know, <sort> of like, <laughs> well, they're wrong, you know, but I, but it's not my place to say they're wrong or, <laughs> but I don't want to, or, or I wouldn't say that out loud or I wouldn't say right. that to their face. But um, I, you know, on the other hand, we had some people, of course, who would say like, well, you know, I had a family member make such and such decision and now I've cut them out of my life and I'll never speak to them again. Mm. Um, but, but more commonly we heard things like, well, I, the value of empathy upheld um, and the value of non-judgment upheld. But I think in tension with this personal discernment and personal sense of moral authority that says, well, I actually do know what's right in this situation, Mm -hmm. but, you know, that person may or may not make the right decision. And then it becomes a question of, one, trust, and two, what's the role of the law in that? Meaning, if I don't trust the person in this situation, then maybe I need to advocate for laws that would basically help the people help themselves sort of deal. Um, Or do I hands off and and find other ways for them to make a decision that is best for them. Yeah, this brings me back to thinking about kind of a a basic observation from your study, which is that people don't have conversations like this, personal conversations about abortion. And what you're speaking about there makes me think that there's 
just in general, discomfort with disagreement, which is an obstacle from the beginning to having real substantive conversation that you're going to enter into a place where you're going to disagree and you have to sort of be comfortable with that and then seek to understand. And possibly there's some movement, but it's not really about necessarily getting to compromise in order to have a real conversation. How how would you assess that, this this? degree of comfort or discomfort with disagreement and how that gets in the way of actual conversations. Yeah, discomfort with disagreement definitely does. And also, I think fear and, and shame, you know, again, within the the context of Catholicism and, and the Catholic Church in particular, you know, we, we heard people talk about how they felt like they couldn't tell their parents, you know, I had one um, interview with a, a Catholic woman who had an abortion when she was young, it was either high school or college, but somewhere in that range, and had never told her parents, um, and, and still remains Catholic, because so a Catholic woman, and holds to that identity, and now has a couple children, she's at a different, different uh, point in her life, and yet she felt like, yeah, there was no way that she could ever talk to her parents about this, and that's an intimate space. Um, mm. And and then if you extrapolate that to the space of a of a parish or a broader community conversation around you know what does it mean to to be able to talk about this and and I think it's almost as much about disagreement as it is about the fear of disagreement and the consequence of disagreement. I actually am inclined to think that there's a lot more common ground than people recognize but our bristles are up and we're so afraid that there won't be common ground. And then that will be taken to an extreme level, which will be personally harmful to anyone involved in the conversation. And so as a result, people opt out. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. This is the second of a two-part interview with Dr. Tricia Bruce in response to her recently published report on how Americans understand abortion. Again, you can find that report and download it for free on the McGrath Institute for Church Life website. You can go to mcgrath.nd.edu slash resources. Maybe one of the most remarkable things about your whole study is that you actually did have these conversations about abortion. Uh, And part of what you found is that people don't have these conversations, but there you were in a room, oftentimes in a public library, uh, sitting across from everyday Americans, as you say, and they're speaking honestly, sharing some of their views, even if they're inquit and partial and not totally filled out. They're they're articulating what they believe and part of why they believe it. I want to kind of flip the, maybe look at the other side of the table here, at you and your team of interviewers, what was it like? What was the experience like for you as researchers to create a space for this kind of conversation? Let me just say at the outset that this whole project and these conversations, these interviews that we had were so meaningful and life-changing to us as interviewers. You know, I, I, as a sociologist, have done many projects and I, I love the qualitative interviews, but these were also just really special windows into people's lives and thinking. And to me as a researcher, and I I think I can speak on behalf of my team too, it helped us to really see 
humans as humans, you know, mm. and, and sort of the, both the, the gifts, but also the, the frailty and the, the questions and the, the challenge that comes with living life, you know, in a morally complex and politicized environment and otherwise. And, you know, we did place high value on creating spaces that felt both uh, confidential, but also just intimate and comfortable and spaces of listening so that people would be able to be themselves and and express what they have to say. You know, sometimes I joke that an interview is like a really great first date where you come home and think, wow, you know, this person really wanted to know everything about me. I, they really got to know me. I, 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 they listened to all my answers and whatnot. And then if you reflect on the date, you might realize later, oh, wait, I didn't learn anything about them. <laughs> I mean, the other thing about these interviews, of course, is that they are, there is a sort of artificiality to them in the sense that it's, it was about the interviewee. You right. know, this was not, sometimes we use the, the shorthand phrase conversation, um, but it wasn't a conversation. Mm. It was really an intentional space of listening. And we would ask people follow-up questions too, you know, just to try to understand and and repeat even words that they would say and, and bring them back and, and, and try to sort of dig help them dig deeper into what they were thinking and feeling as a way for, for us to really understand who they were. And I think there's also something about being a stranger that invites this kind of honesty and candor that you wouldn't otherwise get, even with a friend. You know, we wear our different hats in our different circles that we participate in, whether it's our, our friends or our classmates or our parents or otherwise. But with a stranger and with this invitation to really share and knowing that you probably are never going to see this person again, you know, chances are right. you won't, then people share in different ways. And I, I recall one interviewee at the, at the end said, well, this is like going to the bar one night and sharing my entire life there <laughs> with a bartender. And then they also made the comment, I'm never going to that bar again. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was, a, no, it, was it, it was a truly intimate space. And for that, we, um, I, you know, I carry this with me um, uh -huh. every day. And I, I want to honor that honesty that we were gifted through these interviews. Yeah, that, that makes me I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, because there are, there is a way in which the setting could be repeatable. But there are some ways in which it's just not as you're saying, you know, there's a there's a kind of anonymity in terms of it's a one time meeting, and you're not really held accountable for what you say. And nobody's at least not trying to form an opinion or a judgment about you. You're really just listening. But I want to talk about part four of your report then, where, where it's titled A Different Conversation, and you enumerate seven principles and corresponding recommendations that go from that. And, you know, one of the things you restate there is that Americans don't talk much about abortion, but then the way in which you connect that that observation to a recommendation is in these words. You say, Americans can talk about abortion, under the right conditions, they are more inclined to enter conversations than debates and would benefit from expanded education in science, law, and moral reasoning. Can you say more about this and what you would imagine the right kinds of conditions and also preparation and formation would be for Americans to start talking about what they haven't talked about here? Yeah, yeah. Part, part of our goal through these interviews was to, for one, give an opening into a conversation that for one may be difficult to have, particularly I'm thinking of 
the hesitancy to engage someone whose views you presume to be wholly different than your own. Mm -hmm. So part of what our goal here is, is to cultivate empathy uh, such that this kind of fear of difference and the, the unknown of the quote unquote other side can be lessened. And, and part of what comes with this too is an ability then to engage ways, not that we all become politicians or activists with this readiness of facts at hand, but there's also this open opportunity to say, hey, you know, many interviewees, for example, didn't know when a heart started beating or in some cases even, you know, at, at what point in the pregnancy, you know, X, Y, Z happens. And, and they didn't know when, uh, what the laws were in their state. And they didn't necessarily have a language to th think through or talk through like, you know, personhood type stuff or, you know, things that would, that might help them discern and think through. And so part of this is, an, you know, to, again, to use sort of a Catholic word, um, an opportunity for uh, formation, uh, to use an academics word, um, education. And um, so it's, it's both content, but also style. <laughs> so under, understanding the opportunity for that content, but done in a way that uh, says that we, we can, in fact, sit down with each other and begin to listen if we um, uh, cultivate empathy and, uh, and person above this sort of heightened politicized culture war that we presume abortion to be. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Bruce, we're coming to the end of now our second episode. So I just want to ask at the end for you to say something about the report itself. For whom is this report that you've now published and is available for free? For whom is it written? Who should, who might find interest in reading this? You know, speaking of someone who's, who got to know intimately these 217 people mm -hmm. in this way, I, I see myself in this report. I think everyone can see themselves in some way in this report. And it is my hope that this, you know, certainly can help us to think through how can we talk through this um, major issue that is abortion that, that has policy implications, legal implications and whatnot. But I also hope, this is my optimistic self, um, mm -hmm. that, that the report can reach um, an audience as a means of kind of cutting through what is otherwise experienced as a deeply divided and polarized community that we have across the United States where we, we can't talk to each other, let alone kind of come to any sort of reasonable collective uh, means toward collective goods. So I, I would love for um, folks who are eager for and open to this kind of conversation that ultimately will have a, a positive impact, I hope, on our, our communities at large to access the report. No, so that's my selfish author way of saying, well, everyone, everyone should do this report. <laughs> well, and <laughs> I can Peter say as too. an, you know, there's a lot yeah, <laughs> I can say as an early reader of the report that I found it challenging, stimulating, enriching and even in some ways healing because I was I was aware of myself of the way I wanted to categorize things too quickly and I found the report to be maybe like a little a little sample of the kind of experience you had in listening to people that I was consistently invited back to listen to what they were saying and not to too quickly summarily kind of uh, categorize or judge it so as an early reader I would say from what you said it, the report is a success 
Dr. Bruce, thank you well, so thank much. You. Not, <laughs> yes, thank you so much, not just for this report, but for your exceeding generosity in joining me for two episodes of Church Life today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for engaging the report, and I hope that the conversation continues. Indeed. I've been talking to Dr. Tricia Bruce about her newly published report, How Americans Understand Abortion. Again, you can find that report and download it for free on the McGrath Institute for Church Life website. The direct link is mcgrath.nd.edu slash resources. And you can find out more about Dr. Bruce and her work at her website, trishabruce.com. Thanks to all of you for joining us, as always, on Church Life Today. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Does debt have you down? Are you worried about your credit cards, your mortgage, or keeping your car? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union can help. Our people are trained to be financial physicians. They can give you a checkup, help you to heal, and then stay healthy. Don't be embarrassed. It's why we exist. When your body is sick, you go to see a doctor. When your finances are sick, you go to see the friendly folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits?